Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. All right, here we go. It's another edition of Loving Liberty with yours truly, Brian Hyde. 801-331-8113 is the number. And i got a lot of great stuff to share with you today. Hopefully, look, hopefully I'm doing one of two things. Either I am sharing information with you that actually is empowering and elevates your understanding or your uh, inspires your ability to to uh, to be the best person that you can be, to to take action where only you can take action, or... I'm just helping fill up some of the monotonous hours of uh, your your commute, your workout, uh, whatever it may be. Um, Anyway, glad to be with you. Thanks for letting me keep you company. Let's see about some of the things on the agenda for today. I'm going to be talking about uh, the difference between yoga and baseball. I'm going to save this one for the next hour, but uh, I don't know. if Have you ever tried yoga before? Look, you you wouldn't know this looking at me now, but about uh, 40 pounds ago, I used to do a thing called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It was a lot of fun. It was a very intense workout, um, very physically demanding. But, man, I'm telling you, the pounds dropped off. Lots and lots of lean muscle, uh, very flexible, the whole nine yards. And In other words, and I mountain biked uh, probably at least three times a week, did Jiu-Jitsu at least three times a week, and worked out regularly uh, in the meantime. I could, I could pound out three miles without uh, too much trouble. I mean, you know, now granted, you know, 10-minute miles are probably about average for me. So uh, it wasn't like I was any kind of a marathon runner. But my point is, I was in extremely good shape. I was very flexible. And then a friend invited me, hey, you want to try some yoga? And it kicked my butt. It absolutely wrung me out. So I got great respect for the people who do yoga. But uh, I'm going to try to make the case with the help of Casey Chalk why baseball may actually be a better bet if you are uh, looking to reduce stress and get some good exercise. Again, that's coming up in the next hour. We're going to be talking about two thumbs up for the trades. This is kind of interesting. This is a little bit, uh, I, I wouldn't say a rivalry, but, but my wife and I have slightly different viewpoints. Now, she is a public school teacher, and so she is very invested in um, the the education system as it is, not just primary and secondary, but um, she's, she's into the higher education thing. Uh, my son recently returned from serving a mission for our church, had a bunch of his friends come and visit this weekend, former missionaries that he had served with, and uh, and I heard my wife tell, you know, each of them at some point, stay in school. Get your degree. Do not stop. Get that degree. And and for some people, that may actually be the best course. But I think sometimes we we take a look at the degrees as if, well, this is the key to the kingdom, and this is what's going to get you where you need to go. I'm actually a pretty big fan of the trades for those who, who don't have academic aspirations or who otherwise have figured out, look, it's not worth taking on tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt in order to get a piece of paper which signals to a prospective employer, hey, I've done the minimum or I've jumped through the hoops. Now you can hire me. I don't know if you remember, I had a conversation with Isaac Morehouse just a few weeks ago from Praxis. <clears throat> Very different approach, but it's much more based on what value can you bring 
to an employer as opposed to, do you have your, uh, your magic piece of paper? I shouldn't put it that way. I know for some people it's like, hey, man, I worked hard for my degree. I don't doubt you did. I'm just suggesting that it's, it's not the panacea. If you're going into a profession that requires that kind of, of education or training or certification, yeah, you're probably going to need it. That's, that is one of the things you have to hand off as you pass through all the various portals of your progression. But Jeff Minnick makes a terrific case about why the trades are something we need to understand are, are a viable and respectable thing. If you've ever looked at a person who does blue collar work, a plumber or, you know, a cement worker or something like that, a builder, and you've said, well, honey, this is why you just go to school. So you don't have to end up like that poor smuck. Uh, you know what? That poor schmuck is probably making more money than you are. And they're do- if they're doing it through honest labor, I don't I don't get the whole let's look down our noses at them. And, you know, they're they're not uh, as smart because they work with their hands. Thank goodness for the trades. Thank goodness for the people who who know how to build things, know how to fabricate things, how to fix things. Yeah. They help make the world run. And it's not to say that people with degrees don't. It's just let's let's appreciate everybody for what they can offer. There is no one-size-fits-all approach. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, the anniversary of the Treaty of Versailles has come and gone. You probably don't think much about it. That's because you didn't live in post-World War I Germany or the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But a uh, hundred years later, this treaty is still affecting the modern world. Got a great article that shares some of the thoughts on that. We'll talk about Christianity and the Big Bang Theory. Great article from Grace and Quay. And if, you, uh, if you're one of those people who falls into the, the, uh, the trap of, well, you know, it's either science or religion. There cannot be any place or any crossover between the two. I hope you find this one as, as thought-provoking as I did. Jeff Tucker has a great article about how global capitalism makes your hipster minimalism possible. <laughs> we'll talk about uh, 40 things that you should teach your kids before they leave home. This is from Daisy Luther, the uh, organic prepper. If there's time, I want to throw in one about uh, why jailing parents who can't pay child support is a questionable public policy. And frankly, it's one that I've, I've wondered about for, for some time, ever since I saw, I think it was a 2020 broadcast, where this dad who was, I think he was a patent lawyer. He was an attorney. He was a professional, a white-collar professional. But when he and his wife divorced... She was awarded custody. He was ordered to pay child support. The amount of child support that he was ordered to pay exceeded his ability to earn that money. I know, unheard of. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think such a thing could happen. But um, the, the cameras were following him as he was reporting to jail to be processed in. And I'm trying to remember, if, I want to say it was like in Denver, Maybe uh, maybe it was in Southern California, but even the jailers were just like, this is really sad. It's a raw deal. I mean, they were doing their job and they were booking him into jail. But here's this guy who had harmed nobody, but had borrowed every dime that he could, had sold off everything that he could. He simply could not make enough money to satisfy this amount that a judge had set. And so they put him in jail where he could earn nothing. If that doesn't make your outrage meter at least the, make the needle jump, if not peg out, you probably should have it checked or at least recalibrated. All right, we're going to start, though, with something a little uh, closer to home here, and that is uh, uh, with the 4th of July coming up. 
I've been thinking a lot about the reason for the season. And that is, uh, why did the colonists separate themselves from Britain? Why did they want the king out of their lives and say, we'll, we'll take it from here. We'll govern ourselves. There were some core values that they adhered to that were not compatible with being ruled or dominated by someone for that other person's benefit. The idea being that, uh, look, we are free men. And we believe that uh, we are, we, we're supposed to be free. And yet we have the king trying to clamp down on us and, and make us essentially his servants when the government, even if it's headed by the king, should be serving us and serving the protection of our natural rights. And so they committed this treasonous act. They said, we will separate, secede, if you will. <laughs> and uh, they seceded from him, knowing full well that if they failed in their effort, they were all going to swing from a noose. Now, that took guts, and it came at a very considerable cost for all of them. And the reason I bring it up is because I'm, I'm hearing more and more of the, the campaign rhetoric and by the way, this isn't limited just to the Democrats. I understand they've got this huge field of people promising everything. You know, we'll bring you more and more of this at someone else's expense. They even make it sound noble. But it's the, the Republicans do this too. But what they're doing is they're violating the core values, the reasons for which they separated from England the reasons for which the signers of the Declaration said, you know what, we ought to be free and independent states. And in so doing, they set in motion this incredible experiment that so far, knock on wood, has endured for 240 some years. What have we got? 243 by my count. But we're in danger of losing it. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about sacrificing liberty while promising the impossible. I'm not trying to tell you, you got to vote this party or that party, because frankly, both parties engage in this form of promises made out of other people's pocketbooks. But if you understand what's really at stake, if, the, if these promises are going to be fulfilled, they may come at the expense of your liberty or, or even worse your children's liberty or your children's children's liberty you get the picture all right we'll take a quick break we'll be back this is loving liberty Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. All right, let's dive right in. Let's talk about promising the impossible while sacrificing liberty. This is an article from Gary M. Gallas, published on the Foundation for Economic Education website, fee.org, F-E-E dot org. And he says, in a June 13th speech, Bernie Sanders offered the clarion call for his presidential run that solving the problems of America faces requires we, quote, Take the next step forward and guarantee every man, woman, and child in our country basic economic rights, the right to quality health care, the right to as much education as one needs to succeed in our society, the right to a good job that pays a living wage, the right to affordable housing, the right to a secure retirement, and the right to live in a clean environment, end quote. 
Now, Gary Gallus points out, unfortunately, in echoing both the Soviet and EU constitutions, Sanders is also promising mutually contradictory rights, which logic demonstrates cannot possibly be delivered. The Constitution of the Soviet Union, for instance, assured citizens of multiple rights, including to education, housing, health protection, work, maintenance in old age, and even rest and leisure. But the exercise of such rights was always subject to the condition that they were not to the detriment of the interests of society or the state. In other words, your individual rights only actually existed where and when the collective or the state decided it didn't get in the way of what it wanted to do. More briefly, it meant citizens' individual rights didn't exist except on paper. Now, along the same lines, Gallus points out the EU Constitution parallels ours in asserting individual rights, such as freedom of religion and expression. However, the Charter of Fundamental Rights also guarantees rights to education, housing assistance, job placement services, preventative health care, social services, social security benefits, paid maternity leave and more. And unfortunately, this, the expansive combination of rights promised in each of these cases is inconsistent with the fundamental right to be free, including the right to exercise decisions over the use of our own property. That's because positive rights to housing, education, health care, etc., provided and mandated by the government require that someone else be forced to pay for them. But that inherent obligation necessarily violates others' liberty by taking their income and property without their consent. So consequently, the liberty guaranteed as a fundamental right doesn't actually exist in practice. And Gary Gallus points out the key is that the positive rights to certain things require the violation of others' negative rights against having their property taken by government. Now, just so we're clear... Positive rights are something that that government forces you or obligates you to do. In contrast, negative rights are prohibitions laid out against others' abuses, particularly by the government, exemplified by the strictly limited enumerated powers that our U.S. Constitution granted our central government and what the Bill of Rights put off limits to political trespass. So even though you've been taught, well, positive is good and negative is bad. No, in this case, negative is what protects your freedoms. Positive is how your life and my life gets exploited and we get turned into pack animals for somebody else's desires. Gary Gallus says negative rights are eaten away by every expansion of what government promises. Americans' constitutional rights reflect the Declaration of Independence, central assertion that all have inalienable rights, including liberty, and that government's purpose is to defend those rights. But the only rights that can be inalienable for all must be consistent with the equal rights of others. Every citizen can enjoy negative rights against government abuse without infringing on anybody else's equal rights because they impose on others only the obligation not to interfere. But when the government creates new positive rights, extracting the resources to pay for them necessarily takes away others' inalienable rights and their liberty. Now, liberty means people rule themselves and voluntary arrangements are the means of resolving conflict. But whenever government assigns positive rights to others, it means someone else rules over the choices and the resources taken from those who are forced to pay. 
However, since no one has the right to rob others, we've got a little bit of a problem. If government is to remain within the narrow range consistent with equal rights, no one can delegate that power to government. Now, Gary Gallus points this out, and this is worth remembering. America was founded on the idea that we have inalienable negative rights that do not originate with the government, which the government therefore cannot take away. That's what inalienable means. It's it's untransferable. It's inalterable. But as people have learned to get public support by dressing up more things they wish others to pay for in the language of rights, our government has increasingly turned to violating the rights it was instituted to defend. However noble-sounding promises of more for you at others' expense can be made to sound by way of sins of omission, they still violate America's core values represented in our founding documents. Most seriously, it would completely undermine any assurance that Americans' right to liberty and the property that sustains it would be secure. And the more seriously such entitlements are taken, the less liberty will remain. Man, I hope you find that useful. This is one of the things that I see with, with the upcoming election is we, we have this mindset. And again, this is not limited to, to Bernie Sanders and those on the Democratic side of the aisle. Every person who gets caught up in the, the religious fervor of the election cycle is operating at some level on the belief that, hey, if we can just get enough people to vote for this, if we can get that, that majority vote and put the right person into office, that represents a mandate that means we have free reign to rule over everybody else. And that is absolutely not true i know we treat it that way i know there are people in government who treat it that way but what i'm telling you is it's inconsistent with the very nature of the government that was given us by the founders it's inconsistent with proper government and if you really want to get technical the whole reason those treasonous signers of the declaration of independence told the king of england to go pound sand and that they would govern themselves is because he was abusing them in that manner. Taking from them for the benefit of other people, not giving them representation, not being responsible or even accountable to them. And when he moved to forcibly disarm them in April of 1775, remember the shot heard around the world? Yeah. That's when they actually resorted to violence to compel obedience on the part of their government to stop violating their rights, their actual rights. Now, that wasn't the first resort. Before that were decades of back and forth, seeking redress, petitioning the king, petitioning parliament. Please, you know, we, we, want, to stay, we want to stay loyal to you, but this is becoming intolerable. And every time their entreaties fell on deaf ears, the king would clamp down a little bit harder. Well, you know, I'll show you who's boss. He was flexing his authority for them. And finally, in the Declaration of Independence, they said, look, here are the reasons. We submit this for the whole world to review. We, we you know, submit this before God himself. These are the reasons why we have chosen to say we will be independent. We will govern ourselves. We have no use for your government, your majesty, Goodbye. And they listed out, I think it was 27 different complaints. These are the ways in which he has abused us. 
and they acted on it. What I'm asking you to consider is, this wasn't a bunch of uh, American aristocrats having a temper tantrum and, you know, just, well, fine, we'll put up our own flag and we'll do our own thing. They were acting on moral truth, the moral truth being we all have rights that should be held inviolate. And when the government of their time refused to, to act properly and within its proper limited sphere, they reserved the right to alter or to abolish it and to set up their own government, which they did. So enjoy treason. It's the reason for the season. Well, I'll have fun celebrating on Independence Day. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, 801-331-8113. Hey, I want to make a quick invitation for you. Um, Independence Day, yes, not the 4th of July, but Independence Day is uh, just about three days away. It's July 1st. Huh, so Pride Month officially is over, I guess. Uh, what uh, What do we call, what's the next month? Is this Humility Month? <laughs> yeah, good luck. I don't think we're going to see a lot of that. But I, I do want to make sure you have very clear in your mind that you are invited to attend this special celebration of uh, Independence Day. It's coming up from noon to two this 4th of July at uh, Independence Hall in far west Utah. It's up on the north end of Highway 126, uh, just a little bit south of Smith and Edwards. Those who are familiar with the area will know that uh, Smith and Edwards is this legendary big store. And uh, Liberty Hall, what a beautiful meeting place. They're going to have uh, patriotic songs. Uh, they'll have uh, Ben Franklin speaking about the Declaration of Independence. Also a screening of a more perfect union. Free popcorn, free hot dogs. And just a chance to really take a few moments, just even a couple of hours, to focus on the why we celebrate independence. As opposed to just how. You'll still have plenty of time for all the parades and fireworks and cookouts and everything. But uh, you are invited, and I hope you'll plan on joining us. By the way, uh, Sam Bushman, whose show Liberty Roundtable can be heard here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. I know he's going to be in attendance. I will be there as well. And I'm just looking forward to another great Independence Day celebration. The only thing that would make it greater is if you would come and join us. So there's your invitation. Let's talk about child support. Great article here from Hans Bader. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education. Why jailing parents who can't pay child support is questionable public policy. Now, maybe like me, you've uh, fallen into the trap of there was a time where I was like, well, man, these guys want to be deadbeats. They deserve to be thrown in jail. And so I'm, I don't want you to, to, to hear this as, uh, boy, he's going to make excuses for people to you know, skirt out on obligations and, and support that they should be paying. Not at all. But the way that this policy is administered, sometimes it's a little bit simplistic and doesn't take a whole lot of nuance into consideration, which means that it can become a tool for injustice rather than a tool for justice. Hans Bader says, if people are in debt, it doesn't make sense to take away their ability to pay their debt. But that's what state governments do to people who get behind on their child support obligations, such as after they lose a job. 
And this is something I know that uh, my home state of Utah does. Um, Some states suspend their driver's licenses. Some states, they'll even jail them. How does that solve the problem? Hans Bader points out that makes it harder for them to find work or find a job and reduces the likelihood that they will ever pay off their debts. A report from the Abel Foundation backs up what some have been saying for years. Unrealistic, punitive child support orders and related collection laws drive parents and families deeper into poverty. This is from the Baltimore Sun, quote, decades of state and federal policy for setting high child support orders and using tough enforcement tools to collect payments has done more harm than good for low-income Maryland families. It's destabilized communities and trapped many men in a cycle of debt they cannot escape, according to a report released Tuesday by the Abel Foundation. The report, written by the top child support enforcement officer for former President Barack Obama, said the state should ensure orders are set by the court based on a parent's ability to pay using their actual income rather than their potential earnings. Child support orders set beyond the ability of non-custodial parents to comply, push them out of low-wage jobs, drown them, in, drown them in debt, hound them into the underground economy, and chase them out of their children's lives. That's according to Vicki Turetsky, who wrote in the 55-page report. Now, much of this analysis is rooted in research by the Ruth H. Young Center for Families and Children at the Maryland School for Social Work. University of Maryland School for Social Work, sorry. Robert C. Embry, Jr., president of the Abel Foundation, calls unrealistic orders a recipe for disaster for low-income African-American fathers, their children, and Baltimore. Evidence shows fathers who get into deep debt are less engaged with their kids, contributing to greater rates of depression, alcohol use, poor health, and progressively worse behavior by the children. The nonprofit is also urging lawmakers to limit the use of potential or imputed income as a basis for writing orders. When non-custodial parents are unemployed or underemployed, courts routinely base payments on a fictitious income the parent would have the potential of earning if they found full-time work. Data shows parents whose orders were based on imputed income actually earn 72% less money than was used to come up with their monthly payment orders. End quote. So Hans Bader says legal commentary, commentator rather Walter Olson, who runs the world's oldest law blog, says one of the worst policies is suspending driver's licenses of parents behind on their child support debt. And by the way, just as an aside, it's not just driver's licenses, but sometimes professional licenses. So, yeah, you, uh, you know, a dentist gets divorced and has to pay child support, gets behind on his child support. OK, we'll suspend your license to, to be a dentist. Great. So now he can go find a minimum wage job or some other lower paying job and try to, to catch up with that debt. You can see how this creates the cycle or a, a death spiral, if you will, of debt. Again, Vicki Turetsky, author of the report and former head of child support enforcement, says when low income parents can't afford to pay their child support debt, driver's license suspension makes matters worse. Very often, people's driver's licenses are suspended when they're behind on child support payments, and that leaves them unable or less able to work and pay their child support. Again, a, a quote from the Abel Foundation, 42% of individuals who had their licenses suspended lost their jobs 
as a result of the suspension. 45% of those who lost jobs could not find another job, and 88% of those who were able to find another job did so but reported a decrease in income. I mean, come on, this isn't rocket science. You can see the cause and effect that's at play here. Hans Bader says, often people get behind on child support because they previously lost their job. The Urban Institute noted years ago that only 4% of non-custodial parents managed to get their monthly child support payments reduced when they lose their job, even though jobless people can't afford to pay as much as people with jobs. Their unpaid child support just grows and grows, leading to them losing their driver's license and access to most potential jobs. Low-income people with cars have access to 30 times as many jobs as low-income people who depend on public transit. That's according to transportation expert Randall O'Toole of the Cato Institute. He says child support obligations are often set too high to begin with. When California commissioned the Urban Institute to investigate why parents were behind on their child support, it reported that the number one reason for, for arrearages was that orders are set too high relative to ability to pay. Now, earlier in the article, Hans Bader described how design flaws typical of state child support guidelines lead to child support obligations often exceeding low-income fathers' ability to pay. So he says, as I describe in, in some of the, in this uh, write-up in the Richmond Times-Dispatch, parents sometimes get jailed for not paying child support that they simply are unable to pay. In theory, to pay is a defense for, to being jailed, but non-custodial parents facing jail typically don't have a lawyer or even understand the rules of evidence. Courts often fail to afford them or accord them rather even the minimal due process safeguards mandated by the Supreme Court decision in Turner v. Rogers. Some court rulings have cited a father's failure to pay for an appeal bond as a basis for not hearing his appeal of his incarceration, even though a parent who's too broke to pay child support will also be too broke to afford the cost of an appeal bond. So that could put low-income parents in a catch-22 situation. When parents are jailed due to their inability to pay excessive child support obligations, their relatives may have to reach into their pockets to pay off the arrears to get their family member out of jail. It can look a lot like holding someone for ransom. A South Carolina judge called it the magic fountain. A, the magic fountain jail, rather. A person who couldn't pay his child support, and as, as if by magic, the money suddenly appears, courtesy of desperate relatives. Hans Bader says, in 2002, Murray Steinberg, a member of Virginia's Child Support Guideline Review Panel, told him that a majority of parents jailed in Virginia over child support were black, even though blacks were only a minority of those ordered to pay child support. Now, this may reflect the fact that black people tend to have fewer prosperous relatives or to, to, that could help them to pay their arrearages and get them out of jail, and these families also tend to have less inherited wealth. Steinberg also described how excessive child support obligations were driving African-American men into the black market. Look, I have a number of friends who uh, are divorced, who end up paying child support, and, and somehow, I think through, through, through sometimes superhuman effort, they are able to meet their obligations, but, but at the expense of, I mean, they, they live very simply. It's almost like they're being punished. I guess I could forgive them if they were to get a little bit cynical. 
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thanks so much for joining me today. You know, we, we've got uh, Independence Day coming up on Thursday. And, of course, uh, there, there will most likely be best of programs, uh, not only for my show, but I think for most of the hosts on uh, the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Uh, it feels like the holiday is starting a little bit early. I don't know how to describe it. Maybe, you know, maybe if I run that through the translator, it would be, I've already mentally checked out, <laughs> so I'll be phoning it in uh, for what days I am on the air this week. Okay, not really, but uh, I'm, I really love celebrating Independence Day, and it's, it's not because, uh, just, of the, just because of the cookouts, which I will be doing. Uh, it's not just because of the fireworks, which I love. But it's, it's just such a uniquely American holiday. And something that uh, I hope that you'll consider joining us at Liberty Hall between noon and two for an opportunity to celebrate. Let's talk for just a moment about Christianity and the Big Bang. This is one of the more thought-provoking commentaries that I've encountered in the last few days. This one was uh, from Grayson Quay on intellectualtakeout.org. And he starts by saying, I once saw a bumper sticker that said, the Big Bang Theory. God spoke and bang, it happened. The implication was clear, in addition to being the least funny sitcom ever made. Ooh, you'll get an argument for that. The Big Bang Theory is an attack on religion. An attempt by scientists to step outside their proper sphere and disprove once and for all the existence of a creator, God. Now, many Christians share this view. Young Earth creationist Ken, Ken Ham's website, uh, Answers in Genesis, defines the Big Bang Theory as a naturalistic story about the origin and development of the universe that contradicts the biblical teaching of creation. Now, Grayson Quay says, I myself am no astrophysicist, but for anyone unfamiliar with the Big Bang Theory, here's my attempt at a layman's expression. We can observe that the clock, or I'm sorry, that the universe is both expanding and cooling at a constant rate. So if we were to turn the clock back far enough, around 14 billion years to be exact, we eventually arrive at a time when all of the matter and energy in the universe was concentrated in one infinitely small point or singularity. And then the singularity exploded. Particles shot out in every direction, and as they cooled, came together to form the molecules, planets, stars, and galaxies. Now, obviously, this cosmological model, despite its near-universal acceptance among scientists, leaves several major questions unanswered. How did the singularity form? Where did all this matter come from? Scientists have advanced several naturalistic solutions to these problems, but in his lecture, The Beginning of Time, Stephen Hawking rejects almost all of them. The one to which he clings is, by his own admission, highly abstract and conjectural. Riddled with words like if and seems, he also admits that if his solution is false, then the only other answer is that there would have to be something, go, something outside the universe to wind up the clockwork and set the universe going. In other words, God did it still remains as viable an answer to the mysteries of the Big Bang as any other. A universe that began with the Big Bang is a universe in which the supernatural cannot be discounted. In fact, when the theory first exploded onto the scene, 
in 1927, first proposed, by the way, by a Catholic priest and astronomer, uh, Jorge, I'm probably saying his name wrong, Lemaitre. It was seen as a blow to atheists and a vindication of Christianity, replacing the previously dominant idea of a steady state universe that had always existed and therefore had no need for a creator. But Grayson Quay says, don't take my word for it. Here's atheist physicist William Bonner, who in the 1950s rejected the Big Bang because he was uncomfortable with its theological implications. Quote, the underlying motive is, of course, to bring in God as creator. It seems like the opportunity Christian theology has been waiting for ever since science began to depose religion from the minds of rational men. Here's Pope uh, Pius XII in 1951. It would seem that present-day science, with one sweep back across the centuries, has succeeded in bearing witness to the august instant of the primordial fiat lux. Let there be light. Here's Christian apologist C.S. Lewis in his 1943 essay, Dogma and the Universe. Quote, if anything emerges from modern physics, it is that nature is not everlasting. The universe had a beginning and will have an end. But the great materialistic systems of the past all believed in the eternity and thence in the self-existence of matter. The fundamental ground for materialism has now been withdrawn. End quote. And here's author G.K. Chesterton in his 1933 biography of St. Thomas Aquinas. Quote, free thinkers of many sorts had often said they had no need of a creation because the cosmos had always existed and always would exist. Most modern agnostics who are delighted to have their ideas called dreadful cried out all the more with one accord that the self-producing, self-existent, truly scientific universe had never needed to have a beginning and could not come to an end. At this very instant, quite suddenly, like the lookout man on a ship who shouts a warning about a rock, the real man of science, the expert who was examining the facts, announced in a loud voice that the universe was coming to an end. He had not been listening, of course, to the talk of the amateurs. He had actually been examining the texture of the matter, and he said it was disintegrating. The world was apparently blowing itself up by gradual explosion called energy. The whole business would certainly have an end and had, presumably, a beginning. End quote. These are some pretty fascinating quotes, for starters. Grayson Quay says, Far from being an attack on the faith, the Big Bang Theory is actually far more compatible with the Christian doctrine of creation than any of the cosmological models that science had previously produced. Now, of course, as Lewis reminds his readers, we should not lean too heavily on this theory for scientific theories change. But the Big Bang Theory has now stood virtually unchallenged for over 90 years and continues to sustain the hope that although scientists have unlocked many of the mysteries of the physical world, they cannot rule out the existence of something or someone beyond it. Well, that does raise some interesting possibilities, doesn't it? I have to say that, uh, you know, I I don't feel like I have a dog in this fight. Like, it's either science or it's religion. You know, there's one or the other. You can't choose. I know a lot of people who um, are scientifically trained, you know, actual scientists, who nonetheless are very religious people. 
And if you say, well, does that, you know, cause them some kind of, you know, cognitive dissonance? Does it, do they have to compartmentalize their beliefs and their work into different things? Well, I don't know. I don't get into their heads. All I know is that they're, they're people of very deep faith and uh, many of whom absolutely believe that there is a spiritual reality that is not detectable or measurable by our five primary senses. And that would mean that uh, they, they believe there are sources of truth other than what we can ascertain by touch, taste, smell, hearing, or sight. So what do you what do you make of it? I mean, I remember having a conversation with a friend many, many years ago about uh, this. And um, I wouldn't say he was a hardcore atheist, but he was a pretty hardcore agnostic. I don't know if I believe in God. And one of the questions he asked was, well... If God exists, how would you explain science? You know, in, in his mind, those they were two diametrically opposed concepts. And I remember telling him that, well, to my thinking, God just simply happens to be the scientist who understands all of the laws that govern the universe. We're just beginning to understand some of those laws and to discover them. And he stopped and went, I never thought of it that way. So I'm not telling you he, he was converted there on the spot and, well, we went and baptized him in the river a few minutes later. No, he, but, but it, it did give him pause. Now, I was raised, you know, in a household of faith. I've, uh, uh, I, I won't say I've, I've always successfully, you know, <laughs> maintained this belief in God. I've always had the belief, but I haven't always exercised my faith as I should. But, uh, but I will freely confess to you that when I am out and about in nature, when I have the opportunity to, to look around me and it could be something as simple as, as a tiny wildflower that I'm looking at as I'm out hiking in, in a you know scenic red rock canyon somewhere. I look at the complexity and yet the simplicity and beauty of the design of that flower and I believe it is designed. I guess what I'm saying is... I tend to see God in the tiniest details of my life. And if that's a delusion, all I can say is, well, I'm not forcing my delusion on you. But it's a delusion that gives a lot more purpose and direction to my life, and I would miss it if it were gone. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 